0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Eating Your Way Through History chat from uh, History Talks, our uh, speakers bureau from the Historical Novel Society uh, Los Angeles chapter. Looking forward to seeing all of you people. My name is Ann Louise Bannon. I am the author of the old Los Angeles series takes place in 1870s Los Angeles featuring Maddie Wilcox, a winemaker and physician. I have with me today Autumn Bardot, historical romances, uh, author of The Impaler's Wife. And you've got a new one coming out, don't you,
1: Autumn? Would you tell us about it and how it relates to food and eating your way through history? Okay, I have a new book coming out actually on Thursday. It's called Goddesses Inc. It is not historical fiction. It is urban fantasy or contemporary fantasy, Uh, but I also write historical fiction with some romance kind of thrown in. Um, So food. I love writing about food. I'm all about the food. There is food actually in my, in goddesses Inc. There are uh, four goddesses and they all come from different cultures. And so uh, I was able to, you know, put some food, uh, all of their foods into the book at, at various times. So that was, that was super fun.
0: It sounds great.
1: Can't wait to see this one.
0: Uh, Zenobia Neal is also the author of the Warrior Queen. That is your last title, correct? The Queen of Warriors. Queen yeah. of Warriors. But you are named after a Warrior Queen, I am. and we're all excited about
2: that. Tell us
0: how the Queen of Warriors relates to Eating Your Way Through
2: History. So the Queen of Warriors takes place 80 years after the death of Alexander the Great in Anatolia and it's about a Spartan woman warrior and a Persian warlord. And so there's a lot of cross-culture food um, between Greek and Persian cuisine. And I feel like it's always really nice to have food in historical fiction because it creates this extra layer of taste and smell and uh, something to relate to even more. That's great.
0: Janet Wortman is the author of The Seymour Saga, uh, the family that was behind a lot of what the Tudors did, including Henry Tudor's third wife. Tell us how your latest book relates to food. They all uh, kind of do. Um, the uh, big
3: thing about the Tudors is that they ate a lot. They, they also had um, humors. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of their food was based on that. I have, uh, my characters got to eat all of the really special dishes, the ones that that really uh, make up the
0: Tudors. So that's always a lot of fun. Can you tell us more about what the humors were and how that relates? And I seem to remember you went around pointing out something about the wine being affected by the, the humors and that went in through the 19th century. That was kind of amazing.
3: Wine was absolutely, so the Tudors believed that um, people were governed by humors and food was a way, food and medicine was a way of staying healthy. Um, So the the humors, you varied with your age, they varied with what you looked like. And it, it was just, it was crazy. You started out in infancy ruled by blood which was warm and wet. And you moved through youth ruled by yellow bile, which was fire. Then as an adult, you got to be cold and dry and ruled by the earth. And finally, as an old person, you were ruled by phlegm, which was cold (laughs) and wet. And when you ate, you wanted to kind of balance everything out. So old people would would not want to eat cold and wet stuff. They'd want to eat stuff that was warm and wet. Um, To to balance out and babies you wouldn't feed them like roasted whatever you would feed them stuff that was cold and wet just to balance them out so there was always you had to keep that in mind as you were deciding what people were eating so
1: accurate right I mean if you think about the the old people and the phlegm.
0: Yeah, yeah. No,
1: no, I, I totally get that. I think that one works really well. And you know, and of course,
0: you know, the whole idea of beef being choleric, which I always remember from Taming of the Shrew, she can't have any of that. It's too yeah. choleric. I mean, they were eating if they were eating cold and wet, that was no fish,
3: right? Cold and wet was definitely fish, but actually that um, you could counteract the basic property of food by adding something else to it. And we still do that today. So we'll take like salmon, which is cold and wet and we'll stick on a mustard sauce or a lemon sauce and that's hot and dry. And so there you have a dish that's perfectly balanced and we still oh, do that. Turkey and sage. I mean, when you think of all of this stuff, we, we
0: balance stuff, we still do it today. This is interesting too, because I seem to remember reading, or reading somewhere that the whole reason Catholics abstained from meat on Fridays was meat was choleric. And it wasn't the fact that it was killing animals or anything like that. It was that the meat induced anger. I don't know, had you heard that, Janet? I actually had not.
3: To me, the the meat, a lot of times, so meat was warming. Mm -hmm. And so lower classes were said to already, their professions, were warming professions, so they weren't supposed to eat a lot of meat. They were supposed to it's eat to pull them down because of all the work they were doing. But avoiding meat on Fridays, that that could make sense. I had not heard that.
2: What's interesting to me about the four humors is I feel like it relates a lot to acupuncture because it's a similar idea of like cold and hot and warm and wet and like the the bad wind and the dry wind and balancing i mean it doesn't have the phlegm and the bile which is a bonus because that always makes my brain just like turn off but the way that janet just explained it it's like it totally makes sense because we've all seen old people being very phlegm-y. um yeah. so i mean i do feel like there's something to it whatever it is it works yeah, I mean, but it is related to the idea of the dry heat and the wet heat and the dry cold and the wet cold. It started
3: in ancient times. So, you know, it's, it's been going on this whole time. So it's yeah. got to have something.
0: Autumn, you've got a lot of different cultures going on. How do you start researching these different cultures and, and their foods? Where do you get your, your information from?
1: I think researching food is probably one of the easiest things to research because there is so much information out there. Mm -hmm. So a Google search, you have tons of experts on agriculture and cooking and and. Whatever ancient things are carved into stone, uh, you know that you you have. Um, but you also have books. Like I have a lot of books in the back where, you know, if I'm looking up if I'm looking up information on the Renaissance, that will include, you know, a, a food chapter, right? What everybody ate, how it was prepared. For Confessions of a Sheba Queen, I had to go all the way back to the time of Solomon, and that was interesting. And that still had tons of information on food coffee i mean they didn't have coffee the way we had it they called it coffee berries and it grew on the hillsides um, of yemen but people people ate it people had it and so it was interesting because they seemed to eat well with the very limited amount of food that they had i think when i do any of my research One of the things I look at usually before I start is the food to see, you know, what I'm dealing with, what was indigenous to the area, because I think a lot of times it's you need to know what's indigenous to the area and what Mm -hmm. was being brought in, you know, at the time. Um, So a lot of times I will just actually Google something like, did they actually have this or did trade not was there no trade there to that part of the country, especially things and spices like, say, from uh, from China, right? So are they trading with that? So that's those are things you really have to be mindful of when you do the research for historical fiction. Zenobia so, yeah. have you ever seen, you know,
0: researched something and said, oh, this is so cool. I've got to build a scene around it. I
2: don't know if it's come that way as far as food, but I have seen recipes that I'm like, oh, this would work perfectly in this situation. Yeah. Um, like I had a, a scene with the spring onion soup with egg in it. that Ooh. seemed very, um, ca- like she's kind of been in a really hard situation. It seemed very comforting. And a lot of times the way that the food is described in cookbooks is really fascinating. Like uh, stuffed chicken with fresh olives and it uses like young tender almonds Mm. And walnuts that children like to chew, and it's just like like these are like crazy ingredients, you know. So it's kind of inspiring to to blend that in.
0: Yeah, speaking of cookbooks, and this is kind of a a, an issue I've found researching my own stuff. A lot of the ordinary, everyday stuff never got written down. I mean, why would you? You know, Mm. when we're trying to figure out how you made wine in the nineteenth century, there aren't any recipes out there. How do you guys? work around that janet
3: there are actually i'm my my stuff is you know the tutor era we got cookbooks (laughs) we have have cookbooks um and what what we have a lot more of is like listing of courses because that would get um recorded as to what got served during a particular course at dinner um yeah. so we we have a lot of that and we know we know there, there are also sumptuary laws so that you can only serve a certain number of dishes depending on what your status is and so the different menus will kind of like play around with the oh <laughs> you know this is like for, a, for an earl you've got these six dishes and, and that's it <laughs> so write about food with like say the lower orders or anything like that No, everything of mine takes place at court, so I am not limited. I can have them eat all of the fun stuff. And their food is good and plentiful, and they've got wine,
1: and yeah, everything works well. For the Impaler's wife there, I trace Vlad's real life from when he was about, from birth on. But I started at nine, and he was imprisoned Uh, for most of his adolescence so you know the sultan would that's what they did back then right they took um they took whatever prince uh of the the lower provinces took them and that way your your main prince behaved and did what the sultan told them to do so but anyway there was a, a part in his life where he was actually he and his brother radu were stuck in this castle in some part in Turkey. I can't remember right now, but they were just basically by themselves in a, in a high cell where they couldn't get out. And they were fed like it was a pottage of onions and cabbage. And they lived on that for about a year. That wasn't so great when they transferred him um, and his brother to, um, another place where the where the sultan actually stayed of course they got a lot better food and that's where he actually met Mehmed the conqueror who would become Mehmed the conqueror um and had much better food because now they were you know their father was doing the right thing but it's interesting like that seemed to be onions was the food of the poor and I don't know like I like sauteed onions I do <laughs> Caramelized uh, onions with a little bit of cream, I'm good. That yeah. would get real old, real fast. But I think yeah. that's, and that's why the, the poor were malnourished and they were not as strong. Yeah. That's why they were much more susceptible. I think Zenobi's going to talk about some of the issues with food. They were so much more susceptible mm. than the than the, noble, uh, the noble class because they were eating no meat, rare meat uh-huh. and, and a, you know, pottage of cabbage and onions you
0: know, or carrots or whatever you could grow in mm-hmm. your ground. because that, And that was, heck, that was in England, because I was doing some research on 17th century England, and it was like cabbage soup. You didn't, that was what you ate for dinner. Cool and dry.
3: As a laborer, you want something cooling.
1: <laughs> You're told you want something cooling. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The people of all the meat. What I found fascinating when I was doing the research, especially for the impaler's wife, was that they would go out on the hunting parties. And I think Janet talks about this as well. And so you'd have these massive hunting parties, right, with the prescribed bird that you were allowed to have, right, the hunting bird. And then they basically feasted on whatever they caught right they made a contest out of it they had bets and then they said okay we're gonna go back we're gonna eat it all up at the palace right so oh, I thought that eight? was I, so it was like whatever was caught turducken yes yeah. turducken, <laughs> right so it's you're just stuffing things and so oh, we got a quail here Let's <laughs>
0: <stuff."> <laughs> it can be a little hard sometimes to figure out what the heck Oh, yeah. people were actually eating especially lower orders right. uh, there's a lot more on what the rich people were doing but um so how do you deal with that how do you work through
2: that well i feel like there are actually like a lot of ways to find out what people ate from like the minoan frescoes of the guy carrying the fish to um even amphora that they find and they can like do samples to see what was inside of it also, like poetry or plays, as well as like visual depictions. And then in Greek and Roman times, there were actual cookbooks as well. Yeah. So different periods of time have different information. Persia, like I just kind of looked at some cookbooks that mm-hmm. just what people are still making that are kind of traditional dishes. Cause like you were saying, like they don't write down everybody what the recipe everybody knows. But I feel like a lot of those dishes are still made.
0: Which kind of leads me to my next question. Is there any way that where you're speculating about
2: what they were doing back then based on what people do now? I kind of feel like I've cheated a little bit because We're in Southern California and we have a kind of Mediterranean climate. So sometimes, like, I have a neighbor who has an olive tree and just, you know, like, doesn't do anything to maintain it. So I'm like, okay, this is like olive season. And of course, the ancients would have been shaking that tree and harvesting it and pressing it into oil, which is, I guess, what I'm doing when I'm walking down the sidewalk. We have pigs. Like I wrote a scene where she has a fig and I was like, oh, this is spring and we don't have figs here now until like late summer. Uh-huh. Um, so I do kind of cheat a little bit that way just because we have a similar climate, although it's hard to know what that climate was like 2000 years ago. And also, I mean, you know, with climate change and everything, I, when I went to Crete to research um, my next novel, I went to a winery and they were saying that there's so much more sugar in wine than there used to be. And also that makes the alcohol content much higher because of global warming.
0: Yeah, because the sugars are developing faster and they're ripening faster. Anyway, Autumn, what about you?
1: I found that what I really loved doing was when I went into into the Middle East, into Yemen, and I'm going to just rattle off some of the food because I just think, wow, like I would want to make some food now from that. Right. Yeah. So they had something called icorn, which was ancient wheat. Okay. So, the, and then we have dates who doesn't love dates, honey, which was huge everywhere. Right. Not sugar was the honey pomegranates, which was a very sexy food, mm-hmm. sesame seeds, fenugreek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right and figs, pistachios, walnuts—so a lot of good, healthy protein there. Right, yeah. A wheat, millet, barley—a lot of barley. Um, very good for you, actually. If you actually eat barley right now, I actually bought some husked barley off of Amazon because it is so amazingly good for you—not the pearl barley, the husk barley. So I'm going back to the ancient times for oh. my nutrition. Broad beans, olives, onions, cucumbers. Of course, they would have been real small back then, right? Garlic, leeks, watermelons, and muskmelons. Of course, then they had all the, they had goat and lamb. No chickens. Goats and lambs. Maybe some birds that they shot from the sky, right? Uh, But otherwise, I mean, they had the dill, margarine, mint, cumin, parge, gruel, you know, stew, all of that stuff. You know, I think when we go to restaurants and we see... What we think is some cleverly prepared dish by the by the chef it harkens back to a lot of the ancient foods and the and all the very cool ingredients that they used janet
0: do you find you sometimes have to speculate a little based on modern or do you are the records complete enough in your case
3: interestingly i have to make a decision a lot of times when we're writing historical fiction We have to be careful because sometimes the real story is just a little bit too crazy. So we have (laughs) to dial it back because you sit there and you go, well, no one's going to believe this. You want to give dishes that people kind of understand what they mean now. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the best example I can use. So after I watched all of the Great British Bake Off, it turns out that there's another show where they have like this whole home cook series. And the wild thing is, is that these people have been cooking these weird dishes that have been in England for the last like 500 years with pieces of the animal that you really don't want to be using bushes that you sit there and you go, who is the first person to try this? And there, there, are a lot of times when when the judges are sitting there going, oh, that that is not going to be pleasant. And so you don't want to describe that in your food. So I just have to kind of dial back to a, a level, you know, <laughs> and just kind of stick with that when I don't go for like banquets and and fun mm-hmm. desserts and things like All that. All right, toughest part about yeah, right. writing
0: the food in your work. What's the hardest
3: I was just thing
2: to do? say that the first person to try it was someone who was very hungry. I
0: would have to agree with you on that one. But uh, what is the toughest part about writing food in your work? Because it's not always easy to get it right and you're, you're sitting there going,. <laughs> I, don't,
2: I don't feel like it's really a challenge to, to write food. It's just a matter of um, you know, making it sound appealing, fam- familiar and yet different enough for example, like sour cherry rice with lamb. It's familiar, but it's different. And it sounds interesting. And then if you like talk about different herbs and spices and scents that go with it, then it sounds really intriguing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, it's like, we don't wanna, I mean, they did use every part of the animal in ways that we often don't. Although my mom always says the best, the secret to matzo ball soup is chicken's feet. so, <laughs> um, but like, I kind of, I probably would keep that out of my book unless I was writing about a matzo ball soup recipe. <laughs> so it's like, you want it to be familiar and compelling in one of the books I'm working on now, I have like basil tea. Cause it's like, what? Huh, right? That it's sounds like, like, that could be good. It's, it sounds like it could be, I haven't tried it, but it's like an idea of like, something that's familiar, but it shows you, like, how different the world is. I like to kind of, to spin it that way, to show, I mean, because one of the things I love about historical fiction is we're, like, it shows you how we're the same, but so different, right? And like, traveling, it gives you this really unique perspective on something you already know. So Mm -hmm. it's, like, a dessert with pepper on it. You're like, what? (laughs) Janet, what's the hardest
0: part about, uh, writing food into your work. Trying to come up with what really
3: is going to um, set it across. In The Boy King, most recently, um, I had, he's a nine-year-old boy, and I had his 13-year-old sister saying, oh, I'm sorry that I didn't know you were coming. I'd have made wafers for you because that was one of his favorites. It was like a nice sugary thing. And somebody looked at her because um, even though she was second in line to the throne right then her she had been bastardized (laughs) has um never quite got over that and somebody looks at her and says you know are you allowed to eat it and um she gets to just you know look up her nose and say i didn't offer it to you i was offering it to my brother so Mm -hmm. um you know, it's like little things like, well, okay, I I know what I want to achieve with that character, what would be a good food to stick in there. So I decided that it was going to be wafers as opposed to like a little marzipan, whatever. Um, So that that's where it gets tough.
1: Okay, Adam, how about you? Do you have a tough part about writing about the food? I actually love to write about food because I just find that you can do so much in a scene with food, whether you name the food or not, even though a lot of times you can add some little extra fun symbolic Mm -hmm. things with the food. But I mean, the food can be a plot device. It can reveal character, how a character eats can reveal a lot about their personality. Are they picky? Are they gluttonous? Um, It reveals food and sharing of food. And if somebody feeds somebody, reveals relationships. It reveals culture and attitudes. There is so much that you can do with food to really bring culture and people and relationships alive, but you have to use it when the plot calls for it, of course, right? But to me, it's just a great way, a very subtle way of showing something about somebody um, that I think the the reader will pick up on subtly, just like you would if you are all at a dinner with a lot of people and somebody does something with the food, right? Mm -hmm. Like if somebody takes something and they separate all their food, you'd right, you're like, aha, uh-huh, they're one of those people, right? Yeah. right? Or somebody who just reaches into somebody else's plate and spears. Oh my God, it. you know my mother. <laughs> so I, I think it reveals relationships and and the personality of the character. So I really do love using, um, using the food. One of the fun parts about research,
0: I love research. I mean, there's nothing more fun than reading ads and what have you and figuring things out from that. But at the same time, every now and then, you get something that's so good, but I can't use it. It doesn't apply. How do you handle that? How do you keep from overwriting?
2: Well, I mean, I feel like it's like anything that you write in your novel that, especially after when you're on the third draft, you you have to just cut out some things that you might love and you have to decide, does it work for this character? Does it work for this scene? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's killing your darlings, right? It's like sometimes you might want to talk a lot about something that's really exciting to you, but it just doesn't work. So, I mean, it doesn't matter, I think, if it's food or dialogue or a gratuitous sex scene. It doesn't serve your purpose or your characters. Um, You know, it's just you have to cut it in that final draft.
0: How about you, Janet? Do you ever get to the point where, oh, damn, I really want I
3: have it um, easier than most because I have a blog. So all of the extra stuff that I, that, oh no, I can't let it stay in this scene. It'll just drag down the scene. I can just do a blog post and talk about, okay, <laughs> this is uh, all the fun stuff. So yeah. that makes oh. it easier because you have a place to put your, your killed darlings. Yeah. <laughs> and killed darlings. I
0: mean, they're, they're not dead. They're, they're, they're just, dead. you know, repurposed. repurposed.
1: repurposed right how about you Adam do you ever get to that point where it's like well when I when I write a first draft I just put in like food or drink I don't really put in the food or drink or anything and it's on subsequent drafts that I will like drop in whatever the food or drink is um for the scene otherwise I I mean I think as a historical fiction writer there is lots and lots of stuff we'd like to put in that we can't I mean we could but it will you know I think Zenobi said drag down the scene and you don't need it and what's it doing there anyway so all you need like sometimes is a word you know or or the adjectives to describe whatever it is that they're eating and then you you move along who has a favorite food scene
2: I have a lot of different exciting <laughs> scenes where I use food to kind of entice one character to another mm-hmm. I was thinking earlier about one scene where um, my main character in the queen of warriors has basically lost everything and she's um alone except for one companion and she's terrified because she's never been Like, separated from so many people, like, she's never been alone like this. And her companion is injured and she doesn't know if he's going to survive. And then she shoots a rabbit. And so she's like, Well, we have honey and now for his injuries. And now we have dinner. In that way, like, her providing the rabbit and, you know, knowing how to cook it and skin it, obviously, first, and, you know, everything like, is an inspirational moment that's one example I mean I have like a lot of really fun recipes but that's like the most basic food of like now we have sustenance
0: come on that's one of the things that makes food so interesting I think is that it is how we survive
2: yeah and I mean the idea of food food as love is like a very common thing Definitely. and the way we use food language when we talk in in modern times um the way we want to eat up babies and you know, like giving, giving gifts as food and stuff. Like it can be used in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And also like Janet touched on like withholding or saying like your social status doesn't entitle you to this deliciousness right. or feeling obligated to eat something because you're dining with royalty.
0: How about uh, you, Janet? Do you have a favorite food scene? <laughs> I was laughing at
3: what um, Zenobia said. I, I, Um, kind of switched around to food as bribe. Um, So, (laughs) In um, Jane the Queen, um, I had uh, this, this one woman who had been trying desperately to get her daughters placed at court. And she tried through three queens and she wasn't able to. And Jane Seymour was pregnant and she had a thing for quail and this woman had a supply and she sent Jane Seymour a bunch of quail and Jane Seymour just sat there and said, okay, fine, I'm only gonna take one daughter but I will place the other one with the Duchess. So yes, so you can use <laughs> the food as a bribe. And, and people actually did that in Tudor England. They would send food all around the place as, as gifts
0: to people.
2: I think we still do that food and yes. alcohol. I mean, not, at first oh, I, yeah. I was thinking to my dog, alcohol yeah. is a gift, a good brand. I mean, my
0: husband's always bringing out the bottles of wine and stuff like that for people because, you know, hey, we care about you. you know. How about you, Adam? Do you have a favorite food scene?
1: I, I have a lot of favorite food scenes. One of my favorites happens to be in the beginning of The Impaler's Wife where they're having a, a hunting party picnic. And the picnics were very... Amazing back then, right? Because you brought your whole staff from the kitchen. So <laughs> while they were out hunting, um, you had all the other people who weren't hunting sitting around and gossiping. And then all the servants came in and set out this beautiful feast of, of food and and you know spun cakes of whatever, just amazing things. But there's a scene where so they they, they take a break from hunting, and Alona, um, she's the the main character. She sits at a, at the table, no, it wasn't at the table, they had like little little stool, it was a picnic. And who was there, and this is actually, you know, it's a historical fact. The Pope has actually sent an emissary uh, from Rome to write a, essentially like a biography of Vlad the Impaler to see what he was doing, you know, because at this point he was being imprisoned by um, the Hungarian king and but he wasn't really in prison. It was just like a political kind of pretend thing. He still hung out with all the nobles. He had his own, uh, you know, place in the castle. He was just technically right imprisoned. And so the Pope sends this person to basically find out, you know, all of his battles and things, which is where I got a lot of the information. Mm-hmm. So the Pope's emissary is sitting at the picnic and it is with Alana, the main character, and then some of her aunts and her aunt's friends. And so I was able to like describe some of this amazing food that they were you know, able to put out for a picnic, but then also use the food in ways that reveal the character of the ants. Well, I don't want to give too much away, but she's doing something and licking jelly from her fingers in a way that makes the Pope's emissary blush quite a lot, right? (laughs) And then, of course, Ilona is so worried about you know, um, Vlad, because she's, you know, she's really attracted to him at this point. And so she doesn't even want to eat because everything's just, she's just too nervous. So I, I had a fun way um, of, of them picking up the food, using the food, pre- pretending not to answer the question because they were chewing or picking up, you know, wine. So that to me was, it was fun. It was, you know, it was a little short paragraph, but it was fun because I really like to to make the eating scene. Like, like, not just the food, but the eating scene, integral to yeah. to everything that was going on. Yeah, that,
0: in fact, that reminds me of a scene in La- uh, Death of the Chinese Field Hands, where Maddie, of course, Victorian woman, you're going to a ball, you eat before the ball because you were not supposed to eat. Ladies didn't, and Maddie still manages to go by the buffet table a couple times. <laughs>
2: When I watch them eating in those dresses, like, okay, on Bridgerton, I'm just like, how? I can't, You're, I'm like no. getting a conniption just imagining like that white or light blue silk and, oh, yeah.
0: Me trying to get and, food to my mouth yanky. without it landing on that light blue exactly. silk is exactly.
2: like. Exactly, and you can't like put a bib on, yeah. You so, know, I mean, definitely right. eating before you go is a good call.
0: You know, I can imagine going to a feast like that and then I can't eat because I'm a lady
2: I would stay in my gown
0: of all the different foods you guys have researched and we've all researched a fair amount of it what would you most like to try
2: I did really enjoy the sour cherry rice with pistachios and all kinds of different meats but um I've been looking through this classical cookbook lately so the the chicken stuffed with olives sounds pretty exciting too doesn't that sound good especially with the the young, tender almonds. Like, I was just like, I mean, some of the descriptions are I'm like, is it me or is it just this cookbook? So, I mean, there are just so many amazing dishes. You know, I actually remember this is, well, it's historical now, but I remember reading The Old Man and the Sea when I was like a teenager and just <laughs> craving a tuna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's like when you're reading different parts Or writing different novels you know you just get you're like oh god that sounds so good so like honey and goat cheese or dates and pomegranates and and i think the idea of blending all the different kinds of things that we don't Mm. blend so much now with the savory and the sweet no we really don't do that that much do we we have like a bacon donut which is as crazy as something the romans would make right like (laughs) chicken and waffles actually yeah and
0: i'm not that far from roscoe's chicken and waffles (laughs) on lake and it's oh my god
2: i've done it it's it's interesting it's really good the fried chicken syrup on savory things is really tasty
0: it can be you really but
2: yeah they didn't they just had honey and okay not syrup adam
0: of all the foods, now, and I'm not saying you have to isolate it to just one, but are there, is there anything you really, really dying to try?
1: Actually, I'm going to tell you what I really, really don't want to try. So, for Dragon Lady, I mean, who doesn't love? Chinese food, right? Of course, but that's not the Chinese food we know. But one of the things that they lived on on board, one of the pirate junks was, especially during times of famine, was rice and silkworms. And I guess that's an acquired taste. There was a lot of information about that, um, especially because they captured English um, English officers and the English officers refused to eat the rice and silkworms. So I kind of did a cool scene with that. Um, because I was able to find his diary online, gosh, that was super cool, but I asked some of my um, students, I have a very, very, uh, different whole lot of different students from all different cultures who had ever had some silkworms and they're like oh yeah you can buy them at the at the local asian market down here and i'm like really i'm like did you have them? they're like yeah they're okay yeah. but so i don't think i'd want to try silkworms and that was the one thing i really have no desire so if i was captured by chinese pirates back then yeah, so. i would probably have been thrown overboard and been shark food <laughs> Well, that's food. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's food too,
0: Janet. Uh, anything you want to try that they ate back then that you uh, not the turducken? Um, I would just, <laughs> I just want to go to
3: one of their banquets, which is different from a feast or dinner. Feast or dinner was the standard banquet at the time was just for desserts and that was the where you got the really good desserts like the little marzipan that they made like into like all of these like fanciful shapes and everything they had special houses that they built that were basically tents or largely ephemeral and that's where you would go to eat your sugar which was also very warming so not good <laughs> for poor people <laughs> So that's what I want to do. I want to go to a banqueting house and eat sugar. That's that's my goal.
0: And we talk about food now versus then. Here we come from a, a culture of abundance. We can get food from anywhere. Yeah, you know, you can get sour cherries. How does that change us as a
2: people? I'm just wondering. Or, or how has that changed in so many ways? Yeah, I feel like. It's, it's been interesting during the pandemic because I remember going to the store like about a year ago and it was, the shelves were bare and like one, or like maybe three people were wearing masks because everybody, we were all wearing gloves back then. And I thought it's the apocalypse. I wonder if there's any sushi. I feel like, you know, we have, it's like, we have the most comfortable apocalypse because just like. Just having bottles of plastic water, like when I looked at World War II movies, I was like, they didn't have transportable water the way we have now, you know? So I feel like even when we have really hard times, they aren't quite as hard. Um, At the same time, because of the pandemic, um, a lot of people have, like my family, we've started growing our own food for the first time. And mm-hmm. that's been really interesting. My, it's my husband, I can't grow anything. Um, I can't <laughs> even keep a Trader Joe's basil plant alive, <laughs> but oh, he sure. figured out how to do it. So it's like, it's interesting to see. I mean, we have such variety and such diversity of the kinds of foods we can have. And also I think that like we have California fusion. Right? Yeah. Like we're actually, I think having Korean tacos for dinner tonight. Like my identity is as a Californian is tied up in a lot of different foods, whereas like in more traditional cultures, who I am is my food. It's interesting because it's like, as a Californian, like Korean tacos is like, you know, it's like what my kids are going to grow up eating. But um, in other places and other times, it's like, you know, that's not my country's food. And actually I, I had some students, some um, adult ESL students who like every time they go out of town, their wife would pack all their food. Mm-hmm. If they couldn't go out to eat, they would just eat the food from home. And it's like, that's a very traditional thing to do. I, I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, I'm going to San Francisco. So my wife, you know, packed everything. And I was like, you're not going to just like Stop at McDonald's or whatever on your road trip.
0: But I mean, I I can
2: understand going to San Francisco and trying everything in San Francisco. You're going to miss out on that bread bowl with the clam chowder. Like, everything you've made is made by your, I'm sorry, it's very sexist, but like your wife or your mother, you know? And it's like to travel and not have that would be kind of like, who am I? I don't know if I answered your question. Well,
0: no, it's, it's, well, no, I think one of the things that sparked the question is, I, was doing some research. Uh, I was listening to uh, Lydia Bastianich as a matter of fact who was talking about how people would use a lot of the f- as Italian immigrants specifically came into this country they'd use a lot of the same techniques and find a lot of the same flavors would use the tomato sauce and stuff like that but then they'd start to do things like there's all this meat around and you know you, you look at a lot of Chinese food orange chicken is not something they serve in China.
2: No, I mean, we have American Chinese food.
0: You use the same techniques, but hey, we've got these
3: ingredients
2: available.
3: Mm-hmm. I just went right off when, when Zenobia started talking about um, the pandemics and uh, the pandemic and the empty shelves. Um, that also happened back then for my population, not for a lot of people. But the court would go on progress and and or would just switch castles every month or so because they would get to an, they would get to a new area and they had to feed the 1000 people that were living in the castle and so they bought up all of the food from everywhere around and they ran out so <laughs> everybody moves on and they can go get food from
2: a different place so it was like you know okay different supermarket <laughs> somebody else's city or town is now decimated because the court is in town
1: well yeah they and they used people used to go broke hosting those guys i think people and we don't do this anymore they ate what was in season yes i was gonna say that we don't eat what is in season anymore and the benefits of eating things that are in season is that you are getting a, a full complete different repertoire of different foods that your body needs, different nutrients. And we don't have that. So what happens, even though we have we have all kinds of varieties, people don't choose those. They choose the banana, you know, 12 months They don't choose. And, and also I think a lot of people don't understand about food being um, in season because they think it's just coming in from everywhere. My daughter-in-law, is father. her grandfather is a organic farmer. And he once told me, don't eat apples unless it's September or October. The apples you are eating in June and July are nine months old. People don't realize that what, you didn't know that. So, oh, yeah. you, no. so also, I think people don't it realize from that South the, America. <laughs> uh, or oh, yeah. a lot of the food that, that is I mean. But but a lot of the food that is coming in from South America also is, even though they say it's organic, we don't know what they're putting on there. They don't follow our rules. Yeah. (laughs) So you have to be kind of wary. And so I think even though we have this diversity of food, people are less and less diverse with their food choices.
0: Interesting. Well, no, and, and actually, Adam, I was thinking about that earlier tonight because, you know, one of the things my husband and I have made a conscious decision to do is to eat seasonally, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's not an easy thing to do. And it's kind of fun that you have to think about that when we're writing a historical novel, but we don't have to think about that now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I went to Trader Joe's today and I asked my daughter, what do you want me to get? And she was like, peaches. And as I said, this is, they are not in season. I mean, I did get her frozen peaches, but I knew what she meant because she was thinking about like what she liked from Trader Joe's. And I feel like it wasn't really until I was living in Japan that I was really more in tune with what was seasonal. Like apples are winter, strawberries are summer. And I mean, the other thing is like being in California. A lot of I mean, my lemons grow whenever and my tomatoes and basil are all the time.
0: I want to thank Janet Wirtman, Zenobia Neal, Autumn Bardot. Uh, Please check out our website at historicalspeakers.wordpress.com We're there. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to uh, see you buy our books. Thank you so much for joining us for Eating Through History. Bye! Bye!